You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Shane Harris, who's a staff writer at The Washington Post, covering intelligence and national security. He's previously written about these topics at The Wall Street Journal, The Daily Beast, Foreign Policy, The Washingtonian, and National Journal. He's also the author of two books, The Watchers, The Rise of America's Surveillance State, and At War, The Rise of the Military Internet Complex. Welcome to SpyCast, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us here Pleasure today. to be here. Thanks. So, well, could there be a better time to be an intelligence and national security reporter? No, never. <laughs> it, 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 I mean, a lot of times I go back a couple of years to gather topics for a podcast. Mm-hmm. You know, if I have a former director, I'm going back like, let's talk about when you just started at the agency. But mm-hmm. I, I tried to go back weeks or even days, but there's just so much information to talk yeah. about. And yeah. in many cases, some of these weeks can feel like years. Yeah, they blend in together. And yeah, there's just true. a new story and not just every day there's a new story every couple of hours mm-hmm. that build upon themselves and washington dc is really all about relationships mm-hmm. you know it's the mm-hmm. whole it's not even who you know it's who knows you and kind of the relationships that are built politically in this in this uh the city plus between agencies between agencies and private contractors and everybody else so i want to kind of talk to you about the current state of some of these relationships and certainly something that's been in the news a lot lately is a relationship between the white house mm-hmm. and the press corps you want to talk a little bit about that. And, and this can be specific in a broad or specific to your job, yeah. to intelligence and security, but also in a broader sense. Well, it is an exciting time. And one thing to keep in mind of how unusual this moment is to be reporting on this beat, even if we did not have a White House and a president that are as unusual and extraordinary in many ways as Donald Trump, and we'll get into that, we still would have presumably been on the heels of this massive Russian interference Uh, and manipulation in our election, which is a giant national security story in and of itself. So just that piece alone, separate from the sort of the always entertaining, interesting, and evolving story of the Trump administration, plus then, of course, the investigation into both the Russian interference and whether there's a connection. So there's just sort of multiple big fronts on this beat that would be enough to satisfy any just one would be enough of a story for any reporter and we have like five and they're all converging on each other um but you know it's it's the relationship right now i think between 
the White House press corps, particularly in the White House, and this is probably true with all the media, it, it's, I've been doing this for 20 years. I've never seen it, uh, this level of contentiousness. The White House, any administration, is always angry at the press. They feel like they're not getting a fair shake. Uh, they wish we would focus on uh, this story versus that story. Um, it is an adversarial relationship. <clears throat> People who are professionals get that, and they understand that I have a job to do, you've got a job to do if you're in the administration. What we've never seen, though, is a president who routinely tells the American public that the press is lying to them, that they're making up facts, that the sources that you see cited in their articles anonymously are not real people. And I think that's really the key distinction that I take, is that it's one thing to, you know, to have politicians blaming the media for their troubles. It's another to have the politicians saying that they're actively lying to you and trying to deceive right. you. And, and I have to say, I'm very heartened by people I talk to in the intelligence community that they don't believe that. <laughs> you know? And I mean, you're talking about a beat where there is often really high tension because we are frequently reporting on classified matters. We're reporting on things that the intelligence community does not want out. There are certainly, I know many people who believe that the press has done real damage to national security and that we, there are times where they feel that we've been irresponsible. No one has ever accused me or my colleagues of faking it right. and making up the information. That's distinct. I mean, do you think this is going to be something that's taught in journalism school moving forward? I mean, you said you've been doing this for 20 years when you, when you were in J school. Could you even imagine that this kind of a contentious relationship between the White House and journalism would have been even possible? Not not, a, not to this degree. Not again, not with the, the president actively accusing members of the media routinely of lying or saying that they're the enemy of the people. And those are the words that the president's used routinely. He used them again, I think, just in the past couple of days. Um, when I was in college, I didn't go to journalism school per se, but I studied journalism and communication and politics and a lot of these, these issues that kind of, you know, prepared me for understanding the mediascape. And I was a consumer of news. I was a news junkie even as a kid. Um, I mean, I was aware of friction between journalists and the people who are trying to hold to account, but I don't think you could have imagined, certainly not someone in the position of the presidency, <clears throat> um, seizing on this narrative and using it for political advantage. Maybe you would expect something like that from, I don't know, a lower-level member of Congress or, or certainly factions within the political environment, but never coming directly from the White House. And the truth of it is, is that you know, media literacy, if I can use that phrase, has just seemed to me to plummet. I mean, I, I talk to people, sophisticated adults, not infrequently, who don't understand the difference between the news division and the editorial page right. of the newspaper. I mean, that's all over the place, right? Yeah. It's, you know, how do they let them, the New York Times say this? Like, because it's the opinion page. It's right, right. And it's really, yeah. it's something. And I mean, or even people who don't really understand that the way the First in the Amendment enables a free press. Right. Uh, there's just such a basic. Uh, lack of understanding and kind of an impoverished, you know, baseline here in terms of understanding what the news business is and what we do, and 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 how what we do plays into the political environment and the back and forth. That I think that you know the president has found an audience that is sometimes so confused or just even ignorant of what the basic processes are that they're willing to believe him. He's the president. He says the New York Times is making it up. The Washington Post is fake news. I think there are people inclined to believe that. You hinted at this a couple minutes ago when you mentioned the, the relationship between the IC and the press. I want to kind of delve into that a little bit further because that is something that doesn't seem to have changed as much as the other relationships within the government. You've been doing this, like you said, you've been covering this beat essentially for almost two decades or yeah. longer. Have you seen that evolve or has that been essentially the same kind of 
this back and forth relationship between an organization or organizations that have no business whatsoever trying to have information get out right. versus your job is to get information out, not necessarily to destroy national security, but to let the people know what's going on. Yeah, I think it has changed. And, and to some degree, it was starting to change even before I started reporting on intelligence, which was really at, at 9-11. I was a technology reporter at a magazine here in Washington, and then suddenly overnight, the space that I was writing about became kind of filled with people from three-letter agencies talking about counterterrorism and homeland security, and it grew out of that. Um, you know, you did see in the mid-90s, <clears throat> in that kind of post-Cold War period, some opening up. I mean, Mike Hayden, when he was director at NSA, was, I think, you know, really well known for being more press-friendly. I mean, he started inviting journalists over to Fort Meade and, I mean, even to, like, I think the agency Christmas party. It's a little bit before my time. But there's more of kind of an opening up. And to some degree, I think that's a function of the fact that the Soviet Union was gone. The main enemy of the intelligence community was no more maybe the stakes felt a little bit lower than normal and so we can start to open up and tell the story about all the great things that the intelligence community does so that was starting to change after 9-11 certainly the you know layers of secrecy were added to an already secret environment but to some degree i do think that the intelligence community needed to go out and tell a story about what it was and what it was doing and why it was now going to be important for homeland security i mean these were agencies that were targeting things abroad. We're paying attention to developments in foreign countries. This massive attack happens in the United States. They take a huge portion of the blame for it. At the same time, the public is then turning to them to say, stop the next one from happening. So there's a story that they have to get out and that they have to tell. Um, <clears throat> there's always the adversarial relationship of they're not going to divulge uh, classified information unless it suits their purposes, right. and we are there to try and figure that out. And there's always that tension, and then certainly uh, that heightened after 9-11 of us uh, uh, digging into classified, very sensitive programs, wanting to bring those to public attention. But I do think that there was something to this idea that the community realized that they had to start telling a story or else somebody else would. Really profoundly, that starts to happen, too, years later around the Snowden leaks. I mean, NSA had this kind of... I think, moment of crisis where they realized that if they did not get out there and tell the story that they felt was the true story about what NSA does, that Edward Snowden and people in the press were going to tell it for them, and they, and they felt that that wasn't an accurate story. Um, so while it's still secretive, I mean, there is not a press shop that we go down to at CIA. They don't do press conferences at NSA. Right. Um, you are seeing a willingness for people to say, this is what life kind of behind the curtain is like. Right, I mean, it's an interesting juxtaposition where you have added layers of secrecy after 9-11. You have, you know, classification and overclassification at level I think we've never seen. Yeah. But the PAO shops got much bigger. Mm -hmm. And they, CIA went on Twitter, and NSA yeah. does like a challenge, a code-breaking challenge <laughs> on Twitter. I mean, right. across the pond, GCHQ is doing the same thing. You know, you do have this weird balance between these agencies needing the American public to be you know, at least understand why they're important and at the same time maintaining secrecy. Uh, I'm going to ask you a little bit later about the formers who are mm -hmm. now become kind of public names. Yeah, yeah. Um, but let me, let me shift focus to keep the IC in mind, but let's talk about the relationship between the White House and mm -hmm. the intelligence community because uh, it started off rocky, uh, the president comparing people to Nazis mm -hmm. and other things. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I'm not sure it's gotten any better, and maybe it's gotten a little worse a couple of weeks ago. So with that foundation, let me ask you about that. And then I want to ask the follow-up so you can think about moving in that direction of, were you surprised in the lack of post-Helsinki 
action, mm-hmm. re, you know, re, people resigning or speaking up or anything like right. that. So <clears throat> the relationship, I think, it gets off to a rocky start, but I think even before Donald Trump is elected, it's worth just taking a second to remember how the intelligence community is is regarding him. Um, I think fair to say probably most people in the community did not think Donald Trump would win. I think most people thought Donald Trump would win. I don't think Donald Trump thought yeah. Donald Trump would win. Um, and sort of saw him <clears throat> as, um, I think it's fair to say many people in the community would have regarded him as unfit for the office. Uh, many former national security officials openly signed a letter, you know, the famous Never Trumper kind of letters, questioning his fitness for office. Uh, uh uh, you know, both from his temperament, not just a lack of experience, but really the temperament that he was evincing what he was showing us. So when he is elected, there is kind of initial shock to the system. And keep in mind as well that many people in the community had also been aware of these very troubling uh, connections that they were seeing between his campaign and Russia and ties possibly between the campaign and the Russian intervention. So there's this initial kind of shock, and I think this, there's some foreboding as well. But then Trump's willingness to then politicize his relationship with the community in the way that you described. Uh, so all of these kinds of points of friction are happening, and it's just it's extraordinary. I mean, the first speech he gave as president, we'll remember, uh, on January 21st, 2017, he was standing in front of the memorial wall at Langley talking about the size of his crowds right. at the inauguration. My phone was blowing up as that was happening from formers and people still in the community who were I mean, appalled by what they were seeing. But then something I think starts to kind of shift, which is that, you know, people in the intelligence community are very good at quickly assessing a situation and coming to grips with it and understanding, you know, it is what it is. This is the world we live in. How do we uh, maneuver in it? How do we survive in it? How do we possibly turn it to our advantage? And I don't want to say that people have become sort of okay with or calm with President Trump, but I think people in the community have really come to understand this is who he is and we're going to figure out a way to plow through it um he's going to tweet fine that's what he's going to do he's going to say outrageous things okay that's what he's going to do um he doesn't read his intelligence briefing fine we'll do it in pictures um you know there you see people adapting to trying really at heart to to serve him as the commander-in-chief i mean i know lots of people who have real problems with him politically but they take very seriously their obligation to provide to the top policymaker right. the best intelligence that they can. That has not wavered. I have, not, I mean, I really, I mean, I've had conversations with people uh, who, you know, are very clear-eyed about who he is as a person and, and as a leader, but still take very, very seriously the job that they are there to do. Uh, and I think that they would feel in a way that they were, in a sense. Um, doing damage to themselves and their own agencies if they if they failed in that regard. Let me ask you about Dan Coates's reaction at, at Aspen mm-hmm. when when Andre Mitchell asked, you know, basically talked to him about things he hadn't heard yet. Yeah. And he was very candid. Was was this a uh candid response until he kind of started thinking about things and said, "Oh Jesus." Yeah. Uh, I mean because a lot of people their eyes were open that yeah. you know like, "Oh geez, he's going to get fired." Like, you know, is he going to resign all this stuff and then the next day He's like, oh, whatever, you know, we're all still good. Everyone's yeah, yeah. still happy. Yeah, I was in the room for that, and it uh, that 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 kind of, that moment where Andrea reads him the White House tweet that uh, the White House has extended an invitation to Vladimir Putin to come to Washington. That happens at the end of the interview. <clears throat> Prior to that, he'd been asked a lot of tough questions about, you know, 
Russian intervention, about the, the, the apparent disconnect between the president's statements in Helsinki, where he seemed to throw the intelligence community under the bus, or at least say he trusted it as much as Putin, and then the statement that Coates put out a couple of days later, reaffirming the consensus view of the community that Russia did this. Um, and, you know, he was, I won't say defensive of the administration, he was honest, he was, he was candid, but he wasn't looking for ways to skewer the White House. That's not what he was there to do. He was answering the questions honestly, and he wasn't spinning. That's kind of a key thing. Um, and I think he was really starting to engender a lot of sympathy uh, in the room. I mean, people who were regarding him as diplomatic, very composed, and also um, not trying to, to BS them, frankly, and just speaking clearly and candidly, and that was very refreshing. So when it got to the moment where he's dropped, this news is dropped to him, and he sort of takes a breath, and he has that, okay, that's going to be special. <laughs> there was a little bit of a bonding with the yeah. audience that he was doing there, where it will say the subtext was him looking at the audience essentially being like, this is my life. And, and the audience being like, oh, we get it, you know, that's okay, you're a great public servant. I remember at the end of it, Jeremy Bash, who was a top aide to Panetta, so it's like a Democratic political guy, gets up in the Q&A and says, I'd like everyone to give another round of applause to Dan Coates, a great American and public servant. I mean, you know, there's some bipartisan bridge right. building going on over this. I have to say, though, I was taken a little bit by surprise by the White House reaction because it was so ferocious. Yeah. And, you know, I questioned how much time the president really spent on it. I'm sure he probably got spun up a bit and then moved on to something else to get frustrated by. But there was this kind of moment of, is this is Dan Coates going to get fired for this? Right. Um, to your earlier question, I mean, just bring back to your earlier question, I, I really thought that after Dan Coates issued that statement five days earlier, reaffirming the intelligence community assessment on Russia contradicting, in a sense, what the president had said only hours early in Helsinki, that he might be about to resign. Right. Well, I mean, that was the kind of beginning of this this bracketing yeah. where Dan Coates looks like he'd gone off the reservation and right. kind of done his own thing. What kind of Aspen was that fight? It was right. almost like microphone drop, like, have yeah, fun, it, it enjoy was this yourself. Moment, yeah. yeah. And, you know, <clears throat> I, was, I was talking to people in the community just sort of trying to get a sense around this moment and what we'd seen in Helsinki and is this some kind of turning point? Is this a moment of truth for people in the community? You're going to start seeing these resignations because, you know, it was, it was, you know, there was something so climactic about that scene of the president standing feet from Vladimir Putin. Right. I mean, it's, remember, it was very clear the intelligence community assessment is that Vladimir Putin himself personally directed this interference campaign, which had a goal of helping the Trump campaign. And I wondered if people were just going to throw their hands up at it. And a number of people I've talked to, and it's not a scientific sample, obviously, but had, there was a common theme coming through, which was, I think about this every day. And what I worry is that if I quit, who is the White House going to find to replace me? Right. And they're worried about people coming in who are, in their view, not professional, who are highly partisan. Um, who don't have the qualifications for the job. Because remember, a whole list of those Republican never-Trumpers is disqualified. I mean, they're, they're blacklisted, effectively. Uh, and I think that these people feel that it is their duty to, and it sounds a little hokey, but this is real. I mean, they took an oath to the Constitution, not to Donald Trump, uh, and that they want to stay in this job because they worry that, you know, things could be much worse if they weren't there. And they're very clear out about it. They don't think that we're on a steady... Uh, um, foreign policy right now. I mean, they're, they're worried, but I think that they feel that they can hold the line. Politically, is this a chance now for Coates to kind of spread his wings? I, his relationship with Pompeo wasn't all that great. Right. And he's supposed to be Pompeo's boss nominally. Right. And that never seemed to come to fruition. They're, they're kind of, and, you know, even off the record conversations with people who are around them, mm -hmm. like that dynamic, I mean, you go from Clapper 
who was a true DNI, yeah, right? Who right. had the respect of the community. He's a general top dog, top yeah. dog, right? To where he even had like Brennan and others who were were, were at least deferential yeah. to the to his position. The Pompeo Coates relationship never seemed to have that same kind of deference. And now that Pompeo is at state, and you have somebody coming up like Gina Haspel who mm-hmm. doesn't have the same kind of gravitas mm-hmm. at least yet. Uh, she's a quiet professional, like yes. you know CIA people are supposed to be. Uh, do you see this as a chance for Coates to kind of be the DNI that kind of was envisioned when the job was created back in 04? I think that opportunity is there, but I'm not sure he'll avail himself of it. Um, I don't really think it's in his DNA to seek the spotlight. <clears throat> um, you know, when he was tapped for this job, uh, you know, the initial reaction that I was getting from, from, from people who knew him and had been worked with him was, you know, competent guy, obviously you know, conservative, he'll be aligned with the Republican agenda, but, you know, not a deep thinker on national security currently. I mean, he'd been an ambassador before, and that's that's a significant credential. But I think he was seen as somebody who would sort of like be there and not be a huge disruptor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't think he came in thinking, I have a transformation agenda for the intelligence community or something like that. And on a day-to-day basis, Coates manages the relationship with the president, and Sue Gordon, who is his deputy, is effectively running right. ODNI. And she's kind of, if there's a COO of the intelligence community, it's Sue Gordon, who is and one it of these. Couldn't be in better hands. Well, she's, she's, she's wonderfully one of yeah. these like fascinating, kind of unsung people who, you know, if you're in the intelligence community, you know who she is, but 99% of the American public has no idea. And that's how she likes it. That's how she yeah. likes <laughs> it, right. And, you know, and there was, <clears throat> there were, I think, people, frankly, in the White House who, when they felt that Gina Haspel, was you know hitting the skids because of the uh, of the the interrogation program history and were worried she wouldn't make it through would have loved to have seen the president nominate Sue Gordon as CIA director and I think that's still a real possibility mm-hmm. down the road or as DNI but to your point about Coates I mean I don't think it's in his nature politically to kind of seize this moment. He doesn't have a natural constituency in the intelligence community. He does not have a particularly close relationship with the president. Mike Pompeo does. I mean, in the national security cabinet, and maybe even in the cabinet altogether, Pompeo really is the one who has, I think, become simpatico with Trump. I think he gets Trump. I think temperamentally they are very similar. Um, That's not often observed uh, with Pompeo, but uh, uh, I think that is true. and I think that he knows how to manage him. I just don't see Dan Coates as, as wanting that job. I think he's more than happy to leave the running of the IC to, to someone like Sue Gordon. We'll be back with Shane in just one minute. But first, let me tell you about ZipRecruiter. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash SpyCast. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With a powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. With results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest-rated hiring site in America. And right now, SpyCast listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash SpyCast. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash SpyCast, S-P-Y-C-A-S-T, ZipRecruiter.com slash SpyCast. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. In, in recent weeks, there's been an interesting development in the relationship between the White House and former 
members of the intelligence community, former very high level mm-hmm. members of the intelligence community. Uh, and this, you know, this we haven't seen a story since the big pronouncement about stripping security clearances yeah. from half of people that don't even have them anymore. But that's right. a detail that we don't really need to pay attention to <laughs> too much. But kind of this we've never seen anything like this before. Yeah. Right. Alan Dulles, when he got fired by John Kennedy after Bay of Pigs, didn't run a smear campaign, for lack of a better word. I think this is what this is, whether it's justified or not, mm. against John Kennedy, right. and no, certainly not publicly, mm-hmm. right? And you don't, you know, you don't see Dick Helms doing that against Nixon. Right. This is very new, yeah, and it's very new not just for people speaking out against the president, but for people who are former directors of agencies like NSA, yeah. CIA, become very public figures. Yeah, it, it is new, and I think that the people doing it, uh, namely Jim Clapper, Mike Hayden, and John Brennan understand that um you know and i've I've spent time with all three of those men and i've reported on them for a long time taking just brennan because he i think has been the most um vocal in his opposition to the president and really has kind of taken it upon himself i think to voice what he believes and i think probably accurately are the concerns of a lot of people in the community um that is not a decision that john brennan takes lightly um uh, I know it seems maybe counterintuitive because he's firing these things off on Twitter and anyone can fire something off on Twitter. It seems like the easiest thing in the world. But I know that that's not something that he approached with, um, how do I put this? I mean, he's not cavalier about it. Yeah. You know. Um, that said, you now have the spectacle, and it is a spectacle, of a former senior intelligence official doing battle with the president. And I know a lot of people who know John and who are very uncomfortable about with that and feel that that is going too far. Um, <clears throat> I think this is just underscores, you know, how many times have we said it? We've seen nothing like this before. Right. That is the unique nature of the moment that we're in. And I, and I do believe that when John Brennan says the things that he says, that he is not trying to be political. I think that he is genuinely concerned about the future of the Republic. Um, I think Mike Hayden has written pretty eloquently on those subjects in his latest book. Uh, and I think Clapper probably would associate himself with that too. They're not doing this to stay in the limelight and to make money on TV contracts. They're doing it because they're scared. Right. Well, I, I, interestingly, I mean, I was going to ask you the next question about the relationship between the White House and the DOJ. Let's start with the former DOJ, mm-hmm. right? Because there are three prominent former FBI directors who are now diametrically opposed with the White House. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Jim Comey. Mm-hmm. McCabe, mm-hmm. and of course Bob Mueller. Mm-hmm. That that's also something that is beyond where you know these are not men who are Democrats. Mm-hmm. Well, they might be now. Comey is now openly yeah, saying you know, yeah, re- recruiting Democrats. Right, the, right. Yeah, but I mean they certainly weren't before. I mean Bob Mueller is about as Republican as it gets, regardless of the yeah. thirteen angry Democrat tweets. Right. Um, Certainly, the FBI is part of the IC, but this is kind of the criminal side, too. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you a dual question. One, the relationship with the former DOJ officials mm-hmm. and the current one, because mm-hmm. this, you know, impeach Rosenstein and, you know, Peter Stroke and all this stuff. Uh, how do you tackle that? Is that part of your job as for the national security mm-hmm. and intelligence? I mean, because of that, the intelligence side, we, we kind of leaks over to your side or is that more of a criminal justice no i think it, 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 it you're right to say it's in the ic and <clears throat> also you know the investigation that gave way to the Mueller probe was a counterintelligence probe right. uh and so that very much is rooted in the ic side of things and not the criminal side of things i think in a you know i think that what you're seeing with comey and mccabe 
and, and other senior law enforcement people, including people like Sally Yates and others who, who were in the Justice Department, what their reaction, it's not dissimilar from the IC side, the formers on the CIA side and the Intel side, but it's a little more specific around the idea of the rule of law. And I think that they've spoken a lot about uh, their feeling that the president does not respect the rule of law, that he's hostile to that. Um, while it is unusual, obviously, to see formers of their level speaking out against the president, they, I think that they would agree they would only do that if they thought that the threat was so grave or so fundamental. And clearly they believe that. They think that this is a president who is hostile to that system uh, of justice. Um, in that sense, you know, look, they are private citizens, right? right? <clears throat> the First Amendment applies to them, too. Um, they're not revealing classified information. They're out there trying to, you know, to put forth an argument that that is that is their right. I think where the community as a whole starts to get uncomfortable is if they're speaking out, whether it's Sally Yates or Jim Comey or Clapper or Hayden, starts to make the public believe that the intelligence community is a political entity. Well, and that's the trick, right? Does it? I mean, there is some kind of maybe counterproductivity here where you do feed into this whole idea of the deep state. You feed yeah. in this idea that everyone's out to get Trump. Right. And it's very, it's, look, intelligence is a complicated topic. There are very few people that know a lot about it. So, you know, once in CIA, always in CIA. Mm -hmm. So there's no such thing as a former CIA right. director. Right. Because, you know, it's still the CIA doing this. And the perception that even if a lot of people at CIA may agree with what Brennan is saying, that this is kind of the CIA position and not the John Brennan position. Right. Just seems to feed this narrative yeah. that everybody's out to get them. That's right. And, and, and there's, in popular culture, there is a, an idea of the intelligence community as the unseen shadowy hand that's pulling all the strings. Right. It's the, you know, it's the smoking man in the X-Files. It's the Donald Sutherland character sitting on the bench with Kevin Costner and JFK. They're the ones, you know, and, and you and I know and your listeners know that that's that's not accurate. That's a that's a that's a fantasized and in many ways exaggerated version of reality. I mean, these are obviously powerful people who know a lot of things and the career national security establishment, the one that transcends political administrations and presidents and is there for 20, 30 years. Look, if there was such a thing as a deep state, that's, I think, what it would be, right? right? That's, that's what I kind of think of when I think of the deep state. Um, the risk now is that people will begin to think that, that those people have always had an agenda, um, that somehow Trump getting into office they see as a, a battle that they lost, now they're at war with him, and that's, that's just not the way that they operate. I keep thinking that what the intelligence community needs <clears throat> is they need the public to start thinking about them the way the public thinks about the military, right? It's sort of, you know, after, um, I mean, really even before 9-11, I mean, after the, the Gulf War in the 90s, there was this whole shift, the post-Vietnam shift, towards thinking of the military as these are the troops, we have to support them, they're above politics, they go places where others won't, uh, they're political bosses, maybe we can take objection with them, but you've got to support the troops, you know, they are, they're on all of our sides. That is how the IC sees itself, as disconnected from politics and there to preserve the national security and the interests of the United States. Um, you know, when I was writing a profile of Gina Haspel for the paper, I mean, the number of people who knew who were her who was so reluctant to talk on the record about who she is for fear of entering into a political conversation right. because she was facing a confirmation hearing. Um, but they see themselves in this kind of, again, apolitical, more like the military. And the IC has, I think, not done a great job of telling 
the American public, like, look, we're an apolitical entity. And now, yes, politics figures into national security, but national security usually is not politicized the way it has become now. Uh, and they're, you know, they're behind on that narrative and they're, and they're suffering from it. I well, think. When, when <clears throat> politics becomes national security, when, when a foreign entity involves itself in our political process, mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure that you can actually separate this with any kind of right. credibility. Yeah. Because all of a sudden, the intelligence you're collecting is about the election of yeah. a president. Right. And so as much as they may try to run for the hills right. and say, we're not political. I mean, Peter Stroke's an interesting you know, person who, if you read all of his idiotic text messages, yeah. which were private, and yeah. I, all of us would probably cringe if someone was reading private text messages of ours, you know, he wanted Hillary. No, he didn't like her very much either, right? Mm-hmm. He also, I think he was a Don, John Kasich fan, right? Yeah. He just, so... It, but that that was politicized because uh, people had the opportunity to, to kind of change the narrative to make mm-hmm. it whatever the hell they felt like. Yeah. And there's a huge disadvantage the IC has in that they can't always argue back right. against that narrative because of things in classification, because that's not who they are. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think of, you know, historically Nixon in the 1960 election, right? So when Kennedy's hitting him over the head with the missile and bomber gap, he knows there isn't one because he's seen U2 photography of the fact that there, there isn't any. We're way, way ahead of them, but he can't talk about it right. because it's about the U-2. And the IC gets hit over the head now with, you know, the Nazis or they're basically, they're crooked this or crooked that. And they'd love to come back with Exhibit A, Exhibit B, Exhibit C, but there's classification issues and they can't come out and say that. That seems even more like we should kind of give them the benefit of the doubt because they haven't leaked so much stuff. Right about this right i mean there's the you know you put your finger on something there which is that i mean i think if the intelligence community really wanted to go to war with the president i mean they could do it uh and 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 despite the really extraordinary volume of leaks that we have seen in you know the year and a half or so now that trump has been in office i don't think that people should construe that as saying that the intelligence community is in some kind of campaign to undermine his presidency even though i think he does believe that elements of it are um right it's 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 not what they do and i think that they're to some degree that's why I suspect Hayden, and I've never asked the question directly to them this way, but why Hayden and Clapper and Brennan feel emboldened to say something now and to defend their colleagues and to defend the integrity of their colleagues. And, and, and every, every time you hear them talk about the president, they make a distinction between the president and the intelligence community. They're trying to separate these ideas. That's, I think, why they're feeling that they have to now, because they know that you know, a Gina Haspel or a Dan Coates or a Chris Ray, uh, or Nakasone, or any of these people who are there who undoubtedly share their sentiments about many of these things, um, aren't going to go to war with the president, not just because they're afraid of being fired, but because that's not what they're there right. to do. That's not their job. Let me ask you, on the congressional side, you know, well, the, we had been paying attention for a while to what was happening in Congress that's been overshadowed pretty dramatically, but there was an interesting narrative for a couple months um, focused on the relationship between the Democrats and the Republicans in HIPSI, the House Permanent mm-hmm. Select Committee on Intelligence, and how compared to SSCI, where you've got Warner and Burr, best of friends, like <laughs> skipping around, like, like Obama and Biden in a bakery the other day, right? They're just, they're agreeing on everything, even though, I mean, Richard Burr was part of the Trump transition team, if I remember yep. right, or he's a yep. campaign chair in like Tennessee. Yep. 
they're doing it the way that these oversight committees were set up to do back in the 70s, where nothing but chaos has come out of HIPSI. Um, I know that's not new. Mm-hmm. I know HIPSI's always been a little bit more political mm-hmm. than SSCI. But are we basically seeing the complete marginalization of a of the House Oversight Committee because no one will believe a word that comes out of their mouths on either Democrat or Republican side? And they're just so dysfunctional that they're just they're completely inconsequential at this point. I think I think that the HIPSI has become largely irrelevant and, and even more to the point, um, I think it's become hostile to the idea of oversight. Um, and I don't think that's a partisan statement. I mean, I think that would be true if this were Adam Schiff versus Devin Nunes, uh, who was the one who was, you know, rushing off to the White House to coordinate the release of information to try and develop a counter narrative to the investigation he's supposed to be overseeing. Um, it's just astonishing. Uh, and, and I think that there are Republican members of that committee who are frankly embarrassed by the behavior of the chairman and the way it's acquitted itself. Um, but that's, that's not what oversight is supposed to look like. You're not supposed to have committee chairmen uh, or any members, frankly, coordinating with you know the political apparatus of the White House to try and you know suit their needs and and, and, and frankly you know the information that the House committee has put out is just to, in terms of some of their conclusions on the Russian investigation are contradicted by the entire intelligence community. Right. It's, it's not they haven't put forward persuasive arguments about a lot of these things. Um, so you know and now is that a function of partisan politics i suspect not i suspect it's a function of devin nunes and i think that you know he as the chairman uh does things his particular way uh and and you know nunes has always been an adversarial kind of overseer um and is political i mean he was part of the trump transition team right is he in trouble i mean i mean legally I don't mean um, politi- I think he's in trouble politically, but legally. He's in trouble politically. Legally, yeah. it's a, I think it's a different question. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, you know, just, you know, I don't know that, uh, I have to really look at what the rules are yeah. and whether he's disclosed classified information improperly. Um, you know, look, if he were shown to have been leaking classified information without authorization, I suspect there could be yeah. some legal liability there. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, that, 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 that I don't think there's anyone really who takes the House oversight uh, investigation at this point seriously you know the Senate Intel Committee with you know Burr and with Warner they've made a real effort to to try and keep that you know some unity I mean they disagree on things and they're on different sides uh, of, of you know of a lot of policy issues I think but they both genuinely from my reporting take seriously the mandate that they have to look into Russian interference and uh, you know, they, they've made a decision to try and be as bipartisan and as unified as they can because they look at the House Intelligence Committee and how its credibility has basically evaporated, and they don't want that to happen right. to them. We'll be right back after this. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. 
Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. So the last couple of days, and I, I have a feeling in a week when this goes up, this is recording this a week before it's actually going to go live. So we're going to take a chance on some of these being completely overshadowed or overtaken by events. Always a risk. But in the last couple of days, and I think we're going to see more of this as, as the days go on, there's been new information about the relationship between the Russians and WikiLeaks, mm-hmm. where we kind of joked back in the day that WikiLeaks was a Russian front and Assange mm-hmm. was a bad guy. It seems now there's more of a smoking gun. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there was some interesting timing and interesting emails dealing with uh, the, the the Trump speech asking for the Russians to hack Hillary's yeah. emails. It sounds like WikiLeaks was a little annoyed that he said it when he did, because mm-hmm. it went against the narrative. That's kind of the new thing today, at least, I saw. Uh, but some of the timing on the release of documents to coincide with very particular strong news days to try to bury a bad story against Donald Trump. The Access Hollywood one, of course, is the most blatant of these, but also to highlight an anti-Hillary kind of relationship. And then I guess a day or two ago came out like this whole idea of the, these bots mm. and these social media um, bots is the wrong word, but basically these are some are bots, some are actual people inside Russia who are creating a social media campaign that a day or two before these WikiLeaks yeah. dumps shows that there's <clears throat> pretty clear case of coordination between yeah. Russian intelligence and WikiLeaks. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, that that story in particular, which my colleague Craig Timberg and I wrote. Was, it was so shocking because you see this volume and number of tweets from the accounts controlled by the Internet Research Agency, which is this Russian organization that has been indicted in the Mueller probe. It's just off the charts how much they're tweeting the day before WikiLeaks emails go out. Um, now, that was also the day that the intelligence community first came out publicly and said, we think Russia is behind uh, the intervention. Maybe that's the event it's connected to. But you point to these other sort of connective tissues that show WikiLeaks operating not like a journalistic organization, <clears throat> but really as an organization that, even if it didn't know it was Russians on the other side, right. clearly understood that these were organizations and entities that had information that would be damaging to Hillary Clinton and appeared to want to publish it for the purpose of damaging Hillary Clinton or at least sowing chaos and, and dissension within the Democratic ranks. I, I keep all that in mind and then go back to the first speech that Mike, uh, sorry, that Mike Pompeo gave as CIA director when he spoke um, it was more than a year ago at CSIS here in Washington. And he made some news with that appearance when he said uh, that he viewed WikiLeaks as a non-state foreign intel- hostile foreign intelligence actor which at the time was interesting and notable uh, uh, in and of itself. But that was also a statement that, you know, I think we reported this when I was at the Wall Street Journal, um, was coordinated with the White House. Um, this is, I think there have been some interagency process around that idea. What I think that that is building towards is that you're going to see some kind of poten- potentially some kind of action against Julian Assange against WikiLeaks. And when the government does that, they will say, this is not a media organization. He is not a journalist. The normal rules and restrictions and guidelines around prosecuting journalists for publishing classified information do not apply to Julian Assange. And and that's going to be really, really key because if they do view him as a journalist who is publishing classified information, then can they indict me next? Can they indict my colleagues at the New York Times next? And so I think that the administration 
interestingly for as hostile as the White House has been towards the press, is trying to basically put Julian Assange and WikiLeaks in a box of agent of a foreign power as not a journalist, and therefore we prosecute them the way we would prosecute spies or, or people who are in the country operating uh, on behalf of Russia without telling the government what they're up to. Speaking of which. Speaking of which. That's a pretty damn good transit. <laughs> you didn't even know it was coming, but you probably did. Let's talk about people who are spying and operating in the United States without letting the government know they were there. Um, did you cover the Russian 10 back in 2010 when Anna Chapman and crew were all arrested? A little bit, yeah. Okay, because, of course, the red-headed yeah. femme fatale yeah. right. certainly brings back memories of Anna Chapman. I mean, this is such a juicy story. Yeah. I mean, it, it's before the NRA was involved. Right. It was a juicy story. Right. And then you bring in the massive National Rifle Association and right. the tens of millions of dollars that were now funneled through the NRA mm. to the Trump campaign. Is this a once, I mean, before the Donald Trump campaign, would this be a once in a generation story? Now we have one every day. Yeah. But I mean, this one taken in a vacuum is just one of these kind of, it's going to be in the history books kind of oh. story if there wasn't so much else going on. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, you know, uh, you know, of course, this centers around this woman, Maria Butina, who is this former graduate student now alleged uh, and under, uh, under charges of, of uh, having operated in the United States as a Russian agent without telling the government. Interesting, she's not being charged under espionage statutes, but rather under this failure to notify the government that she was a Russian agent. Um, you know, the idea that it starts to make so much sense when we think about Putin's long game that the Russian intelligence services would try to co-op conservative political movements in the United States uh, and that one of the best ways to do that would be to go through the most powerful conservative political network in the United States, I think, which is in the National Rifle Association. Um, the kind of methodical nature of that long-term planning, coupled with the just utter bizarreness of sending this, you know, 20, how old was she when in her 20s? Yeah. Woman who's, you know, got this backer who's a former central banker in Russia and they plucked her out of Siberia and now she's attending American University. I mean, there's sort of there's these discordant elements, right? Of this. And not even really undercover at AU, right? The, oh, all, no. the, all the people were saying they kind of thought she was fishy because she had like bare-chested Putin posters oh, sure. on her wall. I mean, it was like, I mean, we, 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 you know, I, I, I would joke about this with people. Like, you know, why didn't she just wear a T-shirt that said, hi, I'm a Russian spy? Right. I mean, e even the, the Russian 10 were trying. They were sleepers, <laughs> right? They were, right? They were trying. They were, they were Cynthia Murphy. They weren't, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. yeah, so. yeah exactly. But yeah. she really seemed to not, not, and she was very proud of the fact. And, we, you know, we read, did a long story about her in the Post where she told classmates that she knew people in Russia and she knew people in the Trump transition team. And this was really something she was quite proud of. And it made me wonder if, well, was her cover to just be playing, hiding in plain sight? Um, the indictment that has been offered is pretty compelling in terms of you know, text messages and direct messages that she had with people in Russia alleged to be her handlers, where she does seem to be a part of, uh, of a political and intelligence operation to make inroads in the United States. Um, but I have to say, I mean, as a, as a, as a, the execution and the tradecraft may be a little, you know, janky and, and a little subpar, but the long-term sort of the, the strategic objective that the Kremlin is showing here, and you're right, it absolutely right, it would be its own story absent of any of the other, you know, things that we cover on a daily basis, is just fascinating. I mean, the idea that 
you know, the Kremlin would try to insinuate itself into a major strain of our political system by cozying up to an advocacy organization. And people should remember, too, there is no indigenous gun rights movement in Russia. That's not a thing. Right. You know, yes, I mean, she and this other person, you know, started it. But Vladimir Putin has a pretty obvious interest in not allowing his citizenry to bear arms. Well, what's extraordinary is that what is literally happening today was what J. Edgar Hoover and crew were insinuating was happening in the 60s, right? The, the, right. the ACLU is a KGB front, <laughs> right. right? Martin Luther King is a KGB spy, right? The Black <laughs> Panther. I mean, it, it's you literally have an infiltration of the largest conservative advocacy organization in the country by Russian spies yeah. versus all the ones that were complete nonsense back during the day. Totally. I mean, it's, 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 there's an irony in that for sure. And I think, you know, where the story goes next, and, you know, we're all anticipating, you know, when are the next set of indictments going to come, whether it's Mueller or other people uh, in the Justice Department. Um, you know, if this leads down the path of the NRA being used as a conduit for Russian money to get into American elections, that's going to have massive consequences. And then it will depend on, you know, was this something that was knowing or unwitting? Uh, you know, uh, I, I'm not enough of a student of election and campaign finance laws to know whether, uh, you know, there are certain steps that you have to take to make sure it's not coming from right. a foreign entity. But, wow, the potential for that to be, you know, really politically devastating for the NRA is quite high. I mean, if it's suitcases full of rubles. From <laughs> that that might have been over, a tip-off. Like, yeah, might have been a tip-off. <laughs> well, let me ask you, is, is this long game already working? Because you're starting to see, and this could just be Rudy Giuliani, Giuliani being a moron, but you're starting to see this transformation between no collusion to even if it was collusion, it's no big deal because it's not against the law. We work with the Russians. I mean, Trump himself has said, I want to work. I want a great relationship with Putin. I want to work with the Russians. There's a lot of things that we want. Why would we want to go to war like that? Like this polarity, like one choice or the other, right? We're mm -hmm. either in bed with them or we're having nuclear right. war. There's right. nothing in between. But that would have made the Reagan conservatives in the 1980s heads explode. Yeah. And many of them still are, right? That's the Never Trump movement and the, many people with the national security community that are like, what are you talking about being friends with the Russians? They're an adversary, if not an outright enemy. But a lot of what you've seen in the last two years, and this is not the Trump administration, I, this is the Putin, it, it, mm -hmm. you know, disinformation. This is the social media, the whole idea of we should be working together seems to start you know, working a little bit. Yeah. Where I can't imagine that some of these people who were hardcore Republicans in the 1980s would now be like, sure, let's work with these guys. Yeah, and I wonder that, too. I mean, look, there are there are definitely two Russia policies right now. There is the administration's policy, which is actually quite tough. We've PNG'd five dozen Russians. We've got the sanctions. We're giving missiles to Ukraine. And then there's the president. Uh, and as Mike Pompeo had to affirmatively state after stepping in it in a hearing last week, yes, what the president says is policy. It has always been so. Um, <clears throat> so that's true. But I, I, like you, I wonder whether or not this long-term strategy is starting to work and whether it's going to not necessarily wear people down, but whether they might say, well, you know, Donald Trump has a point. Why shouldn't we have better relationships with Russia? Why, why shouldn't we, we search for those kinds of opportunities? Uh, which is not to say that it's always a bad thing. But if that's what Putin is aiming at, is trying to eventually sort of to nudge people into his direction, 
Um, uh, you know, and I think he clearly is from targeting the NRA and targeting conservative movements. I mean, there's the, uh, you know, the affinities and the connections he finds around things like around religious conservatism, the ability of, you know, churches to influence official policy. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are places where he finds, you know, levers that can, can, can bring people over and maybe believe and finds that conservatives generally uh, are, are more amenable to some of the views that he has of things. Um, and on the, and you know it, what I find also though on the the question of you know Rudy Giuliani is is a good point in this now the narrative changing towards well even if there was collusion it's not a crime if you just step back from the day to day of the kind of wildly contradictory things that the president and people around him often say and the kind of head scratchers and the former mayor of New York has provided a lot of them what you see along that the long narrative of the past two and a half years of our understanding of Trump Russia is that more and more information has come out that does show that there were contacts between the campaign and Russia. And the defense of that shifts over time. And the latest of that is, well, if there was collusion, it's not a crime. We've heard even a variation of that in the past. And what's happening is kind of slowly there's this acknowledgement that, yes, there were these contacts. Now, does that add up to a criminal conspiracy? We don't know the answer to that. And if anybody's going to find that, that's going to be Bob Mueller. But already, you know, you've got the president and his allies having to try to explain this bizarre relationship that he has with Vladimir Putin, which kind of crescendos with him standing on the stage with him in Helsinki and trying to sort of now kind of make the argument of like, well, you know, it's not criminal what's happening. That's astonishing. Right. And I think that you're right that I mean, you know, that people from the Reagan era and and I know some of them are, 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 are kind of, you know, gobsmacked by that. And, and, and it's why people continue to keep looking for what is the explanation here? Is Trump's relationship with Putin really just like there's some kind of mind meld going on or is there leverage involved? Right. And as long as, you know, the president pursues this policy separate from his own administration of, you know, affection and affinity for Putin, people are going to keep asking that question because they're looking for a logical answer to explain this because no national security professional would tell you that it's a great idea to get in bed with Vladimir Putin. Well, as extraordinary as the Helsinki summit was, a couple of days before the NATO meeting, as a, I'm, a, I'm a Cold War historian, that mm. to me was yeah. completely mind-blowing. Yeah. And then yeah. if you talk about the kind of the normalization of some of these ideas, I guess it was a couple of days after Helsinki, the president was on with Tucker Carlson, I guess, on, mm-hmm. on Fox, uh, talking about, you know, well, if Montenegro might pick a fight, you know, as Montenegrins or whatever, they're 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 pissy and they might want to go to war with Russia, and then we, because of NATO, we have to be involved in World War III. That statement, it was all of ten seconds long, repudiated the last seventy years of American yeah. foreign policy, and like that, right? And a lot of people took a step back, but Tucker and others were just like exactly, mm-hmm. and to me, that was the most more more than Helsinki. Mm. Right, yeah. Helsinki. I just, he, I think he's a little starstruck. Right, it's like yeah. you know, if, if, if Clint Eastwood or, or you know, someone walked in here that I've been like idolizing since I was a little kid. If John uh-huh. Glenn came back from the dead, <laughs> it was, I would be like, you're John Glenn. You know, I it, to me that's the Trump Putin relationship. Yeah, yeah. But the NATO side is absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, and 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 that and that is a place where Trump has been outspoken 
over the years when he's he, he you know he in the 80s he was talking about this and believing that we were getting you know uh, uh taken for a ride in these alliances and by the way that is vladimir putin wants to dissolve those right. alliances let's make sure to make that connection as well but you know i i think you're right i mean it, it's it is it just astonishing to see an american president uh standing there with nato allies and not only you know questioning the very nature of the alliances but being utterly flippant about the value of it uh and, and kind of you know breaking it down like he did in that in that tucker carlson interview um you know this is and i think it's important to remember too like this is not a widely shared view in national security circles it is not a widely shared view in conservative national security circles lots of people have problems with nato bob gates when he was Secretary of Defense, gave speeches taking NATO to task and saying, basically, you need to devote more of your GDP to defense. This has got to be a more equitable relationship. But just questioning the fundamental value and right. nature of the alliance that has shaped the world order for seven decades in our favor, according to our values, I, I'm with you. It's just I, 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 I kind of look at that and I have to rub my eyes and think, is that really happening? Yeah, I mean, particularly in the case that there's every single NATO commander since its inception has been an American. Yeah. Right? I mean, we, we're the only country, the only time in history where Article 5 of NATO has been enacted was after 9-11. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is an organization that we created, you know, not, I mean, they were certainly happy to have the American nuclear umbrella over Europe, but it wasn't, it was so, so uh, we could push back against the Soviets and, and it's been in our best interest since the very beginning. Uh it's absolutely mind. I, I don't need you to talk. It's absolutely mind blowing to me. I just can't like Helsinki to me was like, you know what? After I'll, that, after that, I will believe anything. It's like, that's what did you happen. expect? Yeah, yeah. I mean, as an old Cold War historian, just yeah. it, who grew up during that time, I'm like, okay, sure, why not? Yeah, perfectly fine with that. Let me go really off topic, but sort of, um, because something that got really lost in all the Trump Russia shuffle that I think is incredibly important mm-hmm. is a, a court case. Carpenter versus the United States, mm. which deals with mass surveillance, because there are a lot of forgotten topics in the last year or so, right? Things that were hot button issues up until all this craziness began. Things like, you know, we had the first ever woman CIA director, and she was somebody that was relatively heavily involved in the enhanced interrogation program. We're not even gonna have time to talk about that today right. as we talked about everything right, else. Right, but right. I do want to talk about mass surveillance and Carpenter because it went way under the radar. Mm-hmm. But this is a kind of a game-changing court case that that redefines the way we can do things from a singles intelligence perspective. Yeah, and it's kind of on a continuum if you think about, you know, the, the case of, you know, putting a tracking device on a car and needing a warrant to look inside a cell phone and now needing a warrant for cell phone location data, which is data and information that the intelligence community had long assumed, going back to previous precedent, was available to them right. without having to get a warrant. Was that whole metadata conversation, Yeah, right? exactly. It's like, it's oh, around this the Snowden leaks, right? Yeah. Is it with Section 215 of the Patriot Act where NSA is collecting all of this metadata without a warrant, but they're like, it's metadata data you voluntarily have given it over um you know what it really illustrates is that there is there is a view of the world there is an operational and a policy view of the world that the intelligence community has had based in law and that view of the world is shifting now at the supreme court and you're really seeing this uh play out in these decisions where the justices are are saying no look wait a second now a cell phone is not just information that's admitting things that you voluntarily handed over in the cell phone tower uh, is not just uh, uh, something that's keeping a record of data that you voluntarily gave. It is that, but you can piece it together and form total surveillance of someone. That is a really 
pretty dramatic. I'm not a you know constitutional expert here, but that's a pretty dramatic diverge, uh, divergence from where the court was before and the way that the intelligence community and law enforcement operate right. in the environment that we're in. And I think you're quite right to point that out. It is game-changing. Um, now, will the, the intelligence community is very good at finding information from other places, uh, and I'm sure that they will adjust their practices to try and get uh, information from other sources. It probably will hit the law enforcement community much harder um, because really it applies to criminal investigations right. and warrants. When you're the IC overseas, you can still steal as much as you want. The right. jurisdiction doesn't. Yeah, U.S. law there. really doesn't matter all that much. Right, but I think that even for people in you know the SIGINT business on the NSA side of things, it has to be kind of head spinning because you're thinking, wow. I mean, our entire relationship and to this universe of information uh, now, how we view that is is changing. Um, you know, from the civil liberties perspective, and I, you know, my first book that I wrote about the Watchers was all about John Poindexter and the post 9-11 total information awareness program that really kind of envisioned a government soaking up all of this information that was out there and using metadata to form pictures. People were, I think, long before the Carpenter case, were clearly warning about, look, we're heading in a direction where, yeah, it may be metadata and it may not be content, but you can piece it together in a way that is more revealing of someone's life than anything that they say on the phone or anything that they write in an email. In a way, it's almost like the metadata doesn't lie. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in that sense, I mean, I think civil libertarians are very heartened by what they saw the court do, which was to you know get further out ahead of this thing and say, no, this information is cumulatively unique. It is, it is not something we've seen before, and it's not, uh, you know, it seems, in there, I think, in the justices' views in the majority, maybe kind of silly to, to regard it as, nope, it's just the same thing as handing over your phone records in Smith v. Maryland, and we're all right. good here. Is this law finally trying to catch up with technology? I, mean, I guess it, it, it is, yeah. And it, it seems kind of strange that it's the Supreme Court doing it, I guess. Right. I don't think of, I guess, <laughs> I mean, you know, other Supreme Court historians might, might correct me, but I guess I don't see the Supreme Court as being technologically out in front. But when we do think about the Supreme Court in civil rights history and, you know, whether it's, you know, going back to Brown v. Boer or more recently with Obergefell, I mean, the court does have these moments Mm -hmm. where it says, no, I mean, this is where we are as a society, folks. This is what the reality looks like. And we take these kind of massive leaps or departures from the way things have normally been done. And I guess, you know, in that sense, Carpenter fits within that tradition. There are a lot of 28-year-old clerks who are working <laughs> behind the 80-year-old Supreme Court justices that right. might have a little right, idea right, what's right. going on. Right. I mean, Congress still hasn't caught up, but maybe this will kind of push them in the direction to start thinking more about keeping the laws up. So I think that, that you know, FISA has also been in the news lately, and mm-hmm. then I'll, I'll let you go because we, we both have a lot to do. But you know, FISA has been amended and switched and played with over the last, you know, 30, 40 years. Um, But FISA was not created with the intent of dealing with the SIGINT capabilities of the United States government. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we're starting to see people pushing back against, not really understanding it well. I haven't seen the the arguments against it are with people that just don't get it. And they're like, oh, it's 99.9% approval rating. Like, Okay, we've had this conversation yeah, before. You're, right. you're, you're either stupid or you're being disingenuous right. with that argument. Right. But there are technological changes that haven't been met with mm-hmm. legal changes along the way, with whether it's FISA or laws broader sense. Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, the, it's unfortunate that the FISA debate, to bring it back to the politicization of national security, has gotten wrapped up in this like you know 
unmasking controversy, which is not really connected to what people are yeah. talking about when they talk about Section 702 surveillance and the finer points of FISA. But you're right. I mean, this is a now 40-year-old law uh, that did not envision the environment in which we're in. And, you know, history shows us. I mean, we can go back to 9-11. It's just that you, if you allow laws and policies to atrophy and not adapt to the threat environment that you're in, bad things can happen. Um, I mean, it is heartening, I have to say. And, you know, I think, you know, look, I'll take some credit for being part of this debate around surveillance and civil liberties and other colleagues of mine. And, uh, you know, the Snowden leaks forced this in a big way. But, you know, society has to engage with what it means to live in a technologically enabled society, but one that has rule of law and one that also has a clandestine intelligence function. These are kind of contradictory impulses in some ways but you know the kind of the magnificent thing about our system is we have figured out how to make these things work with some degree of transparency which you know people should remember the transparency into our intelligence community is kind of unique mm -hmm. among major world powers even though it's a fairly murky world still you don't see this kind of uh, peering into the british secret intelligence services or any of the other five eyes so you know i guess in the long run i'm sort of optimistic about, you know, uh, sort of getting the mixture right. It's never completely balanced. But it's good to see, I think, particularly as a journalist who writes about these issues and wants people to engage with hard choices, to see people really taking it on mm -hmm. and saying, well, what is the nature of this technology and should we change it? And yeah, the law is this way, but is that the way we want it? Could it be better? Um, could it be improved? Should it be more restrictive, less restrictive? I mean, this is, this is the price for having a free democratic society mm -hmm. that has an intelligence mission. Shane Harris writes for the Washington Post. You can read his articles, which come out very frequently since there's always a story on intelligence and national security nowadays. Uh, back in the day, you may have had a story a month. Now, there, yeah. you know, every, every couple of days, <laughs> Expectations there's, are there's higher. something else with Shane <laughs> as a byline. So check him out online. Most of his articles, are there. they're all incredibly interesting. We didn't even get to some of the most interesting stuff. Uh, so we'll have to have you back in Love a little to. while to have a part two. Hopefully, we'll have less to talk about yeah. uh, in the world. <laughs> a break would be nice. Yes. So Shane, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. We really appreciate Thanks it. Thanks a lot. It's a privilege to talk to you and your listeners. Thank you. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page.